Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What are Governor Haley and DeSantis' plans to derail the Trump train? The lead starts right now. After a blowout in Iowa, next stop, New Hampshire. As Donald Trump pushes his competitors to drop out, Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley make their next moves, vowing to stay in the fight. We're going inside their campaigns to learn their battle plans. And defiance on display and for sale will take you to a store in Trump country that has Trump memorabilia that really has to be seen to be believed. Plus, the breaking news from the Middle East, a new round of U.S. strikes on the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen. This after the U.S. seizes Iranian-made weapons on their way to arm the Houthis. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start in our 2024 lead. Cue the music. The election jam is underway. A runaway victory for Donald Trump last night in the Iowa Republican caucuses. Trump's victory the strongest showing for any non-incumbent in the modern era of the Iowa caucuses since the 1970s, with Trump winning 51% of the vote. That is 10 points higher than the previous record. George W. Bush won 41% in 2000. And turnout for Trump was sweeping. He, he won every single county in Iowa except one, that one in yellow you see there, Johnson County, Nikki Haley won, 99 counties, but Johnson County wasn't one. Look at these scenes from last night. Democracy in action. Hard-working election workers counting votes on pieces of paper, tabulating them, putting them in popcorn buckets, all of it on the up and up. Today, no complaints of fraud, even if the system, frankly, looks like it hasn't evolved much since the caucuses began in Iowa in 1846. Now, why? Why are there no complaints of fraud today? Well, perhaps because Donald Trump won. You might recall eight years ago when Ted Cruz won the caucuses in 2016, Trump lodged evidence-free complaints of fraud. In fact, he's still claiming he really won in 2016, even though he did not. Here he is before the results last night. We won it twice, as you know, two elections, and uh, we're going to have a tremendous night tonight. He did not win in 2016. Ted Cruz did. This is a reminder that when Donald Trump loses, he falsely claims he was cheated. This time, however, he won handily and legitimately. And Trump did not just win 98 of Iowa's counties. According to exit polls, he won the male vote. He won the female vote. He won among all age groups above the age of 30. He won the evangelicals. He won college educated and non-college educated among almost every single group of voters. Donald Trump won. And Trump did all this after holding significantly fewer events than his opponents in Iowa and while facing 91 felony charges in four indictments, with the majority of caucus goers saying they would vote for Trump for president even if he is convicted of a crime, even if he's a convicted felon. Now, whether that's related to his attempts to overturn the 2020 election based on election lies or his handling of classified material, it doesn't matter to these voters. Now, 
Turning to the New Hampshire primary next week and back to that George W. Bush comparison from 2000, yes, W won big in Iowa, but then days later, John McCain would pull off a surprise victory in the New Hampshire primary. Last Tuesday night, we interfered with the coronation. My dear friends, they call it, they call it a bump in the road. I'm telling you, my friends, it was a landmine. That made huge headlines at the time. Today, Nikki Haley is brushing off Trump's huge margin in Iowa and looking ahead to the Granite State. Iowa's always been a pro-Trump state, and we knew that going in. I was thrilled at the fact that we just wanted to come out strong. And the idea that we were able to come out of there strong enough to come into this state was all we needed. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Jeff Zeleny, now on the ground in New Hampshire. Jeff, you were with Nikki Haley at an event in Manchester, New Hampshire today. How's she feeling about New Hampshire? Jake, there is no question that Nikki Haley had an air of confidence about her, but perhaps it was more a sign of relief. Arriving here in New Hampshire, where the electorate is, quite frankly, much more uh, friendly to her, particularly because of those independent and undeclared voters that she is hoping to rely upon to uh, shake up this Republican nominating contest. But, Jake, there is no question, as the former president also is on his way here for a rally in New Hampshire this evening, he is still in dominating control of this race, and she knows it. Donald Trump took his sweeping Iowa landslide This is the biggest win onto New Hampshire tonight for the second stop on the road to the Republican nomination and what he hopes will be a rematch with President Joe Biden This is the first because the big night is going to be in November when we take back our country and truly we do make our country great again. Along the way, he made a voluntary detour to federal court in New York to watch jury selection in a defamation case against him. The latest sign of how the courtroom is a critical piece of his campaign. Nikki Haley sought to turn a narrow third place Iowa finish into a winning message on electability. Our campaign is the last best hope of stopping the Trump-Biden nightmare. That pointed argument rests at the heart of her week-long push to the New Hampshire primary, hoping to tap into Americans exhausted by their leading options. She amplified that call in a new TV ad. The two most disliked politicians in America, Trump and Biden. Today in New Hampshire, Haley wore a confident smile as she tried to will the primary into a two-person race. She declined a debate with Ron DeSantis, telling CNN's Dana Bash she's looking beyond the Florida governor. He is not my concern. I'm going after Trump. On the heels of a distant second place showing in Iowa, DeSantis began his day in Haley's home state of South Carolina, hoping to plant a flag outside New Hampshire to keep his presidential aspirations alive. Nikki Haley said only the top two from Iowa, you know, go on to be viable. Well, guess what? We might start taking DeSantis and Haley intensified their bitter duel over who is the leading alternative to Trump. Yet the former president's 51% Iowa win suggests most Republicans may not be looking for one. Trump's unifying tone in Iowa. I want to congratulate Ron and Nikki for having a, a, good, a good time together. We're all having a good time together. And uh, I think they both actually did very well. Belies the reality in New Hampshire where he and his allies have been on the airwaves tearing into Haley, hoping to blunt any momentum. Nikki Haley, too weak, too liberal to fix the border. 
While Iowa is the first stop on the Republican nominating calendar, once again it marked the end of the road for two more candidates, including former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, a fierce Trump critic, and Vivek Ramaswamy, the entrepreneur who endorsed Trump and is set to appear with him tonight in New Hampshire. To make sure that Donald Trump is successful as the next president of the United States. So as this Republican field gets smaller, even a week before the New Hampshire primary, Nikki Haley is trying to cast this as a two-person race between her and former President Donald Trump. Of course, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis would have a word or two about that. He is headed here to New Hampshire for a town hall this evening at New England College. He, of course, is making the argument that this is not a two-person race. It's, in fact, a three-person race that he got second place in Iowa. Jake, for all of that, though, there are serious questions facing his candidacy about the financing going forward. He's working with donors to try and keep their support alive. For Haley, though, New Hampshire is all um, the, uh, the uh, centerpiece of her focus. She, of course, was campaigning with a New Hampshire governor, uh, Sununu, earlier today. She believes this electorate is good for her candidacy. But, Jake, Trump is coming here tonight as well. He did win New Hampshire in 2016 and went on to win the nomination. Jeff Zeleny, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Let's talk about that two-person race thing with former Republican congressman and presidential candidate Will Hurd from Texas. He's now supporting Governor Haley. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. So last night, Nikki Haley in her speech after she took third place in Iowa declared it was now a, quote, two-person race, meaning her and Donald Trump. But DeSantis came in second place. He's staying in the race. The third contest after New Hampshire is the Nevada caucuses, where I don't think Haley's even competing. So how is this a two-person race? Well, it's a two-person race because Ambassador Haley has the resources and the organization in all these different states. Um, you know, Ron spent a lot of his money in Iowa, um, claimed that he was going to win and, and came in second place. You know, Ambassador Haley uh, banked some delegates and is moving on t- to New Hampshire. Uh, the, the reality is if, if most Americans, and most Americans want to see um, <clears throat> something other than a rematch from hell between Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump, Uh, Nikki Haley is the best alternative, uh, not only in beating Donald Trump, but going into the general election and beating Joe Biden. Um, She is, for the last 11 months, shown that she has the ability to beat Joe Biden by a wider margin than any of the other candidates that are still in the race. So, I mean, she did come in third, and and you talk about how her having the ability to compete, but I don't think she's even going to compete in Nevada. So it, it still doesn't make any sense to me. Well, look, the, the Nevada case and the fact that more people aren't talking about it, the fact that the, the state party there changed the rules, there's going to be two different kind of elections. And that if you if you, you know, historically it had been a primary and not a caucus, uh, Trump supporters changed it to a caucus. And so, you know, part of this is she is going to be on the ballot in in on the primary but the fact that the state gop uh which is supported by is in donald trump's pocket is not going to um uh, accept uh whatever happens in that right so i i think i think that's a that's an asterisk um going into to to new hampshire uh we've seen all the polling uh, it's a tight race between ambassador haley and and trump uh we got a week uh, before the election. And guess who else thinks this is a two-person race? Uh, Donald Trump. All the time, energy, effort, and money he's putting into lies and, and criticizing Nikki Haley, I think, is a sign that their campaign recognizes her uh, as, as the threat that, that she is. And, and, and here, the, the bottom line is this. We need more people to come out to vote. 
less than 15 percent of 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 identified Republicans voted last night in Iowa. Yes, Donald Trump won and got about 7 percent of that. If we want to see a change, if we want to see someone who's going to be able to ensure we take control of health care costs for our aging parents, mm. for ourselves and for our kids to be ready for a war in the Middle East and, and Europe and potentially with China, uh, mm. we need more people to vote in these primaries so we can get an option that we like in November. Do you think that Governor Haley needs to be more aggressive about why voters should not vote for Trump? In the last uh, week or so, it seems like she has been more focused on running against Governor DeSantis than on the guy who is the clear frontrunner and you know, had a historic victory last night in Iowa, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, well, Jake, I, I disagree a little bit with with that narrative. Ambassador Haley has been clear on when she disagrees uh, with with Donald Trump. Um, she's done that in the five or so debates. Um, she's done that in the television ads. Um, so I, I think that narrative that she's not pushing back is is actually incorrect. I think she's going to continue to articulate a hopeful mes message for the future. She's going to talk about how there's no drama or baggage with her. And, you know, Donald Trump won last night. And what did he do, you know, to celebrate that victory? He didn't go to Disneyland. He had to go to court. Right. And this is the kind of baggage that's going to continue uh, to deal with him. And I, and I think in your lead up, uh, Jake, you talked about how there was polling about the number of Republicans that would still vote for, for Donald Trump if he was actually indicted. But there was a number in there that you didn't mention. 32 percent of Republicans said they wouldn't. And that's going to have a huge impact in a general election. And this is something that Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to continue to focus on. Right. But she has a website called DeSantisLies.com. She reminded uh, uh, viewers of, of that website 16 times during the debate we did. Um, Donald Trump is notorious uh, for being the most mendacious sure. uh, president and political official uh, in American, um, at least modern history, which is which is an achievement. Um, there isn't a website TrumpLies.com from Nikki Haley. I, I just well, she seems to be that, that may be the case. But I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jake. No, no. Go ahead. No, but that may, I, I don't know that, but but the reality is, is the uh, the dollars that have gone into advertising has criticized it. The mail that has gone out, gone out has criti has criticized him. Um, in the earned media, which is super import important, uh, she's been willing to criticize him. Um, so so again, I, I think uh, she's been very clear. Uh, that this is a race against Donald Trump and she's she's looking to beat him and she's going to continue to to articulate that message. All right. Former Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd, always good to see you, sir. Thanks for stopping by. Take care. One week out of the New Hampshire primary, it's going to be held uh, one week from today. Governor Ron DeSantis is going to make his case before voters this evening in a CNN town hall. My friend and colleague Wolf Blitzer is going to moderate that. That's tonight at 9 Eastern on CNN and streaming on CNN Max live from New Hampshire. If Donald Trump does manage to secure the GOP nomination, will he be a drain on the entire Republican Party? Will he be an albatross? My next guest is gaming out what this primary race might look like for Republicans two, three, four months down the line. You're not going to want to miss this. Stay with us. For Republicans hoping to move past former President Donald Trump, last night's decisive victory in Iowa for Trump was a wake-up call. Donald Trump secured his first win 
on his path to a third straight Republican presidential nomination while seeming to cement his hold as the party's standard bearer. So what does Trump's dominance as of now in the Republican Party mean as we look towards an increasingly increasingly likely rematch between Trump and Biden? Let's bring in uh, conservative political commentator Eric Erickson. Eric, good to see you. So we just heard a Nikki Haley supporter make, make his best case, their best case, for how she can get to the nomination. Uh, Ron DeSantis is using his distant second-place finish last night to justify staying in the race. Do you see a viable path for either Haley or DeSantis uh, as they continue running? No. When you look at Iowa, Nikki Haley won the college town. She won Johnson County, actually winning the county, and DeSantis didn't. Uh, but she's winning the highly college-educated areas that actually are the least likely to turn out in Republican primaries. DeSantis won suburban precincts of college-educated evangelicals, uh, but he wasn't able to match that to actually win any counties in Iowa. So I don't see a path for either one of them moving forward. I mean, one of the things from this, Jake, is that the polling averages tend to be right. And it wasn't Iowa. If so, it's probably right in New Hampshire and South Carolina, which puts Trump ahead of everybody. As we look towards November and a potential rematch between Trump and Biden, uh, you wrote, quote, Trump's victory in November will be way more resource intensive than a Haley or DeSantis victory, unquote, meaning uh, that the Republican Party and fundraisers and donors are going to have to divert a lot more money to the presidential race, to the top of the ticket, instead of spending it on House races, Senate races, governor's races and beyond. Do you think Trump's name at the top of the ticket, when it comes to battleground states, at least, is going to harm down ballot races? Look, I think it can. Here's the thing Republicans aren't paying attention to. All the polls show that Trump is actually doing better than he's ever done before. But if you actually poll people who turned out in 2020, the highest turnout presidential election, he loses to Biden by about six points. It's one thing to say you're ahead in registered voters, but not every registered voter votes. He mobilizes Democrats more impassionedly than he does Republicans, which is a problem for down-ballot Republicans. So let me give you an example from my beloved home commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Republicans want to defeat uh, Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey Jr. They see that as a possible seat to flip. Um, do you think Trump will make that task harder for Republicans? Yes. When you look at Pennsylvania already, even a swing state, Biden is still slightly ahead of him in the polling averages now when people aren't paying attention. Uh, the Democrats have a good track record when in Pennsylvania. It makes Dave McCormick, the potential Republican nominee, have a more difficult path with Trump as the standard bearer. Because you and I both know Trump will say something and the Republican candidates will have to answer for Donald Trump as opposed to staying on their own message. Last night we got insight into this looming question. Would the four indictments and 91 criminal charges facing Donald Trump matter to voters? And last night a majority of Republican voters in Iowa said, nope. In fact, when asked specifically if Trump is fit for the presidency, even if he's convicted of a crime, 65% of caucus goers said yes, 31% said no. Now, obviously, caucus and primary voters are very different than general election voters. But when you consider Trump's first stop after his victory speech was back in court, how much does this benefit Biden in a general election? Because as Nikki Haley's uh, supporter, uh, Will Hurd, just pointed out, 31% of Republicans saying he's not fit to be president if he's convicted, that's not nothing. In 2022, for the first time since 2002, independents sided with the party inside the White House and 13% of Republicans did as well, according to the highly accurate exit polling. Uh, that's going to hold up if he's found guilty. In the Florida case, there's a high likelihood of guilt in that case alone. So yeah, this will really affect Republicans are kind of playing with suicide fire in, in, in this to 
try to embrace Donald Trump, given all this, but they want to rally around their guy because they feel persecuted and see themselves through him. But that could cost them the general. Vivek Ramaswamy suspended his campaign after finishing fourth in Iowa. He endorsed Donald Trump. Ramaswamy did find popularity in part by saying things such as this. Take a listen. The January 6th now increasingly looks like it was an inside job of entrapment involving our own federal government. I'm sure the boogeyman white supremacist exists somewhere in America. I've just never met him. <laughs> never seen one. Never met one in my life, right? Maybe I'll, meet a, uh, maybe I'll meet a unicorn sooner. What do you make of the fact that, I mean, his message obviously didn't catch fire exactly, but, he, you know, he lasted longer than uh, a lot of more established uh, and respected candidates. I think he was only there to try to hurt everyone other than Trump. Personally, I, I wait for him to do a tell-all book about the rubes who loved him and as he mocks them for believing the things he said yesterday as opposed to the exact opposite things he said two weeks ago. Uh, his entire candidacy was a troll of Ron DeSantis, and I guess to that extent it worked. Eric Erickson, always good to have you on. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Of course, on the side of the 2024 race uh, are Trump's legal problems. Mr. Trump was in court again today in New York. Uh, what's being done specifically to protect jurors in this case? That's ahead. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A day after winning the Iowa caucuses decisively, former President Donald Trump was back in New York in a New York courtroom today for his second def defamation trial brought on by E. Jean Carroll, a former magazine columnist. You might recall Carroll winning the first defamation trial last year after a jury found that Trump did indeed sexually assault her in the mid-1990s and then proceeded to defame her in 2022. In this trial, Carroll is seeking more than $10 million in damages for Trump's continued defamatory statements he made in 2019 about her sexual assault allegations. Trump denies any wrongdoing. CNN's uh, Paul, Paula Reed is following the case. Paula, uh, why was Trump in court today? It's a great question. He did not have to be here. He, this is his choice. There's no requirement for him to attend this proceeding. He doesn't have any role. But, Jake, we've seen that he and his team, they've become pretty adept at leveraging these court proceedings for their larger political narrative. Today, for example, we saw his 
lawyer, who is also his spokeswoman, Alina Haba, get into a contentious exchange with the judge over a request to adjourn court on Thursday when his mother-in-law's funeral is being held. Now, she likely knew this was going to be denied because they already made a similar request. But by bringing it up again, getting into a contentious exchange, and then being denied, things like that feed into this larger narrative that he is somehow the victim uh, of an unfair judicial system. The judge mentioned that this jury is anonymous, and the judge laid out rather strict security measures to protect uh, the jurors' identities. How common is that? Well, to have an anonymous jury is increasingly common, though it is not an ordinary thing that you see. It does happen, particularly in cases where there are concerns about the integrity of the process or the safety of those of those jurors. For example, terrorism cases, certain murder cases, police killings. This is something that we've seen, and we're seeing it increasingly. Look, there are legitimate constitutional questions uh, about transparency uh, in terms of having an anonymous jury. But here, given the threats that we have seen against judges, court staffers, jurors, in other cases related to Trump, it's certainly not surprising. So I guess what I'm saying is, you mentioned murder cases, terrorism yeah. cases, I imagine you know mob cases, it would be normal. But for a case of defamation against a politician, it, I don't, it doesn't sound like it's normal. It's just they're doing they're taking these extreme extreme measures because it's just known that Donald Trump incites threats uh, against his uh, accusers and, and people, anybody who stands uh, against him. Yeah. Once you have that added word, Trump, we know that he has used his bully pulpit to turn a lot of attention uh, towards judges, towards court staffers and jurors, people who are just showing up to do either their job or their civic duty. So there are legitimate security concerns for anyone in a case related to Trump that is not anonymous. So the fact that they're making them anonymous here, that's not a surprise at all. Who are some of the potential witnesses that might be asked to testify in this case? So we know that E. Jean Carroll, for example, she wants to call uh, an expert to talk about damages. She would also possibly like to call some other women who say they, too, were sexually abused by former President Trump. But, Jake, I think the two witnesses uh, that I'm really focused on are, first, E. Jean Carroll. She testified in that trial uh, last spring. I was in court for that. It was incredibly uh, emotional. But you have to remember, she was in court today for the first time in decades with Trump in the, in the same room for the first time in years and years. And the thought of her having to talk about this, something so emotional for the first time in front of him, that could really be a moment. Now, there's also the possibility that Trump could testify, but his lane, like what he can actually talk about, uh, given that this is just about damages, is incredibly narrow. It's unclear he would be able to stay within those bounds. But at this point, the judge has not said who will get to testify. So Trump was there today, as you noted. He, he did, wasn't required to be, but he, but he likes to use this uh, for campaign purposes. How often is Donald Trump expected to attend? It'll be interesting to see. We expect him back tomorrow. I mean, this case is only going to last a few days. On Thursday, his mother-in-law's funeral uh, is, is being held. Doesn't appear that he will attend on Thursday. Friday, there's no court. And Monday is the day he could testify. So it's going to be interesting to see, Jake, just how much return on his time investment he feels he's getting. And if he really does show up. And then that other big question, will he take the witness stand? Okay. Paula Reed, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, what tons of merchandise and... Yes, some of it is rather vulgar and profane. Selling at a store in Southwest Virginia says about Donald Trump and those who support him. Stay with us.
Topping our world lead, a new stage of Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza. Israel's defense minister says the current phase of the war will end soon and will shift toward more targeted operations. This is after an elite IDF division exited the Gaza Strip last night. Not every Israeli official seems to be on the same page. Far-right National Security Minister Ben Gavir, uh, an anti-Arab racist who's called for the complete reoccupation of Gaza, insists this is the wrong approach and the decision to remove Israeli troops will, quote, cost human lives. This, as suffering for Gazans, compounds with a bitter winter. The United Nations says Israel's operation has brought famine with, quote, incredible speed. And hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are already starving. Joining us now, Morgan Otegas, a former State Department spokeswoman under Donald Trump. Uh, Morgan, thanks for joining us. So Israel's shifting war strategy in Gaza comes after pressure by the Biden administration for Israel to conduct more targeted precise operations uh, because of the, for the, with the goal of saving civilian lives. You just returned from a trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, you met with Israeli officials. How much sway does the Biden administration have over Israel today? Well, I still think an incredible amount. Um, regardless of which political party is in the White House, Israel knows that its most important relationship is with that of the United States. And quite frankly, the Biden administration has taken a lot of heat, even from within their own party, uh, for their support. Um, saying that, I, I was struck uh, when I met with all of the senior officials in the war cabinet um, at a couple of things, Jake. One is their resolve really to go after Hamas, uh, because of course we we hear, and it's in our news headlines every day, what the Houthis are doing, uh, exchange of fire with Hezbollah. You hear warnings coming out of Lebanon. We know Israelis in the north still can't go uh, back home. But Israelis, uh, the war cabinet from my meetings with them seemed very, very intent on, um, on degrading and destroying Hamas as much as possible. And, you know, when I listen to your opener and the tragic things that you just said that the Palestinians are going through, uh, famine and others, none of this would have happened if it wasn't for the Hamas attacks. None of this would happen if Hamas didn't continue to steal the aid and if Hamas didn't continue to hide behind their own women and their own children and hostages in order to save themselves. So that's what the Palestinian people are having to deal with. Sure. And there was a Reuters reported a few weeks ago that Egypt had, had proposed a deal uh, where Israel would uh, implement an immediate ceasefire and turn over all the Palestinian prisoners in exchange for Hamas turning over all the Israeli hostages and relinquishing power. And according to Reuters, um, Hamas said, no, they're not going to take that deal. Um, today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that Arab nations, including Saudi Arabia, are prepared to do things in their relationship with Israel that they've never done before. What did you hear from Saudi leaders? What does that mean? Uh, listen, I thought it was very interesting. Um, in my meetings with uh, the Crown Prince MBS, uh, he was certainly, and Blinken has said this publicly, so I feel comfortable saying this, uh, he didn't dismiss the possibility that there still could be a deal uh, with Israel. Now, that would, of course, uh, have to have something for the Palestinian people. He he, and most of the Arab world are going to want some sort of, if not a, um, a, a path towards a state for the Palestinian people, if, if not one in that deal, at least a path towards one. But I think they want... Uh, serious things, serious concessions for the Palestinian people. But but I, I think just just in and of itself, 
that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is not dismissing it after everything that we've seen from October 7th, after what we've seen go on from the Arab street, shows to me that there is some hope. I mean, someone is going to have to stand up in this region uh, in order to, to stop all of the fighting, to stop the attacks. You know, we hear, I've heard constantly for years behind the scenes, whether it's Hamas or Al-Qaeda or other Sunni terrorist groups. I lived in Saudi Arabia during the Obama administration when I was his treasury attache, and they're very encouraging behind the scenes for Americans and others uh, to go after terrorists. And it's often a very different picture from what you hear publicly. So again, I think even the fact that MB we haven't gotten to a deal yet, but even the fact that MBS is willing to entertain this conversation means somebody in the Arab world is willing to step up and be a leader. I don't know if the Biden team will get there. I was a part of the Abraham Accords team in the last administration. I worked for President Bush, President Obama, and President Trump. So for me, I don't care if peace comes under a Republican or a Democrat. We just need to get to peace for Israel. Today, the U.S. launched a third round of attacks on Iranian-backed uh, Houthi uh, infrastructure in Yemen. That was a direct response to belligerent Houthi attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. Will the Houthis and Iran ever get the message, or do you think this is going to escalate? Sure, they can't get the message, uh, Jake, but the problem is, is they've had three, three years to build up. So not only did we designate them as a terrorist organization at the end of the Trump administration, um, which is, of course, important, but there was a very controversial war, of course, happening between Saudi uh, and the Houthis. But we essentially stopped that war in President Biden's speech in February of 21. And we no longer wanted civilian deaths. Of course, you don't want that. But what happened in the three years since? Iran has had billions of dollars in, in relief um, from sanctions not being enforced. They have used that money to build up the capability of the Houthis. And Jake, we're really seeing the nightmare scenario that you and I and many others talked about after 9-11, which is a terrorist group with ballistic missiles and sophisticated weaponry with the ability to go after U.S. ships and U.S. sailors on a daily basis. That's always what we said after 9-11 that we don't want and what we're seeing now. So uh, the U.S. strikes are incredibly important. I support them. I think that they were a little late, but we're going to have to be realistic that they've had three years of no one going after them and three years of the Iranians training, equipping, supplying, and directing them. Uh, Morgan Ortegas, a former uh, Trump uh, State Department spokeswoman, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Coming up inside a church convicted to a store that sells tons of Trump merchandise, some of it uh, kind of crude. So who's buying it? Back to our 2024 lead in the wake of our entrance poll showing two-thirds of caucus goers last night say the 2020 election was stolen, which it wasn't. And two-thirds feel Donald Trump is fit to be president even if he is convicted of a crime. Some of you out there might be tempted to ask, what are these people thinking? A good place to find out is a store inside what used to be a church where faith in Trump is a given. And politics, sometimes with a cheerful touch of vulgarity, is on display. CNN's Ellie Reeve paid a visit. The mugshot was really hot. And this stuff lasts probably about two months. It stays really hot. But the first week that we the mugshot came out, we sold like 2,000 t-shirts. What's that? <laughs> That's uh, Trump's balls. Okay. <laughs> Whitey Taylor runs a busy Trump store in Boone's Mill, a town of fewer than 500 people in southwestern Virginia. We visited a week after Christmas, with the Iowa caucuses just days away. Taylor predicted Trump would win the Republican nomination, and then business would really boom. can only get these here. 
How much are $20. you? $20. Yeah. Customers were bullish too. What the superfans bought offers some insight into what they want politically. The merch is not just simple campaign slogans. It's defiant, even vulgar, aimed at buyers who enjoy being mad at the state of America and think there's one guy who will fix it. When Trump was indicted for all these different things, did people stop buying his merchandise? No, they bought it more. Why? Yeah. Because they knew it was like Russia collusion. This is all just all bull made up bull. Now he has gained a lot of people because of this administration that we have now, yeah. You get we, people coming and saying Oh, that? yeah, definitely, yeah. They'll just come in and say, never again will I be that stupid, you know. Hi, welcome to the Trump Shore. What have you observed about what people are looking for? People want our economy better. They're, they're very scared, I think, because of the way things are going. They feel like um, where we're at right now is not, is like stagnant. Were you interested in politics before Trump? Yes, and you know, it's strange. Because I've always been Democrat. Really? <laughs> yes. So I yeah. am a firm believer in believing in a person and system that's going to make positive changes. I think in the past, I made some quick judgments about my voting. And so I'm very more selective and it's more thought put into it. What's coming up right now? Who knows? The more the Democrats talk about uh, mega crazy people then, it, you know, something will spin off of it. Within a 150-mile radius of here, anybody gets company in, they bring them here. Why'd you come in today? To get some uh, Trump stuff so I can advertise and, you know, support him. 06, 08, I like lost everything I had. Yeah. But I barely survived. I mean, I don't know how I did. And this is leading up to the same thing again. It's coming. The downfall is coming. And do you think Trump could pre prevent that? I think he can. <laughs> I think he can put the brakes on it and turn it around. I often wonder what encourages people to be a Democrat, because I don't see a lot of kindness. I don't see a lot of help for our country, and I see a lot of talk and no action. He got into this business at the very beginning of Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. Taylor's a serial entrepreneur and intention seeker, and he prayed to God to guide him while selling racing merch at the Daytona 500. My son said, Dad, what's God telling you? I said, came in my spirit. He wants me to help Trump. I said, I'm going to order a thousand t-shirts. He said, Dad, but that's crazy. You know how crazy you get. Just get a hundred. I said, go big or go home, boy. I said, if God's telling me, we'll sell every one of them. Not with them trash can leave. All we had was a white t-shirt that said, uh, Hire the vets, fire the idiots, Trump 2016 on the front, red, white, and blue. And on the back, it said, finally someone with balls, Donald J. Trump, okay? And I became known as the balls man on the tour. Taylor opened the store in the fall of 2020, inside a 100-year-old church. After the election, the big seller was Stop the Steal. Did you think the election was stolen? There's no doubt the election was stolen, yeah. And what did you think of January 6th? It was a bad thing, but if you look back, you actually look at the tapes and stuff, they were let in. But they still should have never went inside, okay? You never go in somebody's house or a house, a public house like that, yeah. Does that complicate what you think of Trump at all, that he... No, Why no, not? definitely not, because he, he definitely didn't tell him to go and storm the house. Would you have any interest in running this store if Trump weren't so controversial? I doubt it. I like his controversy. You know, we need something that we can laugh about and be happy about. 
there's liberals that think they can come in here and actually tell me what to do. The last one was a professor from UNC. She was just telling me what a great job Biden's doing. I tried to tell her to leave. But do you not appreciate, you know, her oh, coming in and wanting uh, to mix it up a little bit? You know? Oh, I love it, yeah, but she don't want to hear what I have to say. She wanted me to only hear what she had to say. You said that you want to rename this town Trump Town? Why not? The boons are dead. The mill's gone. Let's change. Do you think other people support you with that? Not really, but it doesn't really matter. It's, it's good controversy if it never happens. Ellie Reeve, CNN, Boone's Mill, Virginia. Our thanks to CNN's Ellie Reeve for that report. Uh, just in, uh, Nikki Haley's campaign is doing a bit of cleanup for what she said today about the United States uh, and racism. That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, transcript leaked in the Hunter Biden investigation. Chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Comer, had promised to release full transcripts of interviews to everyone at the same time. So why are only select portions of select interviews somehow getting out to MAGA media, such as the New York Post? Plus, a U.S. Navy officer, Lieutenant Ridge Alconis, sent to prison in Japan for a tragic, deadly, accidental crash while suffering a medical condition. After paying more than a million dollars in restitution, he was treated differently than a typical defendant in Japan, he says. This is a story we've covered in depth on the show. And now Lieutenant Alconis is back in the United States, out of prison, and he will be here today on the lead for his first interview. And leading this hour, Donald Trump's first campaign event since his, his historic win last night in Iowa and his day in court today in New York. Now he's headed to New Hampshire and will take the stage with a brand new supporter by his side, a gentleman by the name of Vivek Ramaswamy, who suspended his own campaign after a dismal fourth place single digit finish last night, hours after saying he would win the Iowa caucuses outright. Meanwhile, the spin cycle is going on. Here's how New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, one of Nikki Haley's biggest supporters, tried to play, tried to downplay Trump's big win in Iowa last night. He's effectively the incumbent, if you think of it that way. So the incumbent president barely could get 50% of his own base voters? I don't know. I don't think that's, I think that's a huge opportunity for America saying, let's move forward with something new. CNN's Kristen Holmes is in Atkinson, New Hampshire. And Kristen, uh, we're waiting on Donald Trump to speak there. Uh, What do we expect to hear following his uh, big victory in Iowa? Well, you're likely to hear him attacking Nikki Haley. You know, we've talked a lot about the fact that Nikki Haley keeps saying that this is a two-person race, despite the fact that she came in third in Iowa. But when it comes to New Hampshire, Donald Trump's team does see this as a two-person race. And just to be clear, that is not the entire primary, but this state in particular. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis does not have a ground game here, but uh, Trump's uh, advisors have been watching closely as Nikki Haley's poll numbers have risen. This is a completely different electorate here, and they are aware of that. So expect new attacks on the the former South Carolina governor and expect him to really take aim at her, just like we have seen the campaign and the super PAC do. I spoke to a senior advisor today, and they are looking at this in two parts. One, securing Republican and conservative-leaning independents. They are doing that by taking 
taking on Nikki Haley on immigration, which they believe is a key issue for Republicans in this state. Now, they are also hitting her on Social Security and Medicare. That is their way of taking her on with independents, moderates, and even left-leaning independents. They believe this is two parts. What they know is going to happen here in New Hampshire is that some of these left-leaning independents and moderates are going to come out to vote just to vote against Donald Trump. Their goal here is to make that as small as possible and to chip away at those independents so that there are more Republicans who support the former president coming out next Tuesday. All right, Kristen Holmes, thank you so much. Let's discuss with our, our panel. Uh, l- let me just start with the, the Social Security attack, um, if I can, Margaret, with you, because Social Security is on a path to, to some, some, either they, they will not be able to pay out full benefits to everyone. That's just a fact. We're going to have to work till we're 90. Yes. yes. So and it is also just a fact that either benefits need to be cut or means tested, taxes need to go up, some combination of the two. I mean, like these are just facts. Right. And this is why it doesn't get solved is because Nikki Haley barely acknowledges this fact and she gets hammered. Absolutely. But because this is about politics and there are some third rails in politics and one is truth telling on things like this. But why is that an argument that you would pursue in New Hampshire? Because it's a live free or die state. So we've all been talking about how Iowa is a different contest than New Hampshire. It's not just because there's not as many evangelicals. It's not just because it's a primary state and not a caucus state, but it is because sort of uh, taxation and the government's reach into you um, from a fiscal standpoint is a much more salient issue in New Hampshire. And that's where Nikki Haley, she may not have the momentum she wanted to have to go barreling into New Hampshire, but she's still, you know, done a lot of the groundwork, got a lot of fans there, independents as well as Republicans. Social Security is an area that could make a difference. Uh, let's talk uh, about what happened last night. Doug, not only did Trump score a resounding victory, historic victory in Iowa with 51% of the vote, uh, in our CNN entrance polls of caucus goers, what was on their minds as they walked into the caucuses, most Iowa GOP caucus goers refused to accept the fact that Biden won legitimately in 2020. It's just a fact, and, 20, and uh, 66% of them deny that fact. Yeah. Uh, They also say they would view former President Donald Trump as fit for office, even if he is convicted of a crime. 65% say, yes, they'll still vote for him. What's your reaction to this? And and what should the campaigns of Haley and DeSantis do with that information? Yeah, well, this also reflects where the Republican candidates are. Most of the Republican candidates overwhelmingly would pardon Donald Trump and would vote for him if he were convicted. So maybe voters shouldn't behave very differently or shouldn't be expected to. But this is how Donald Trump... Um, has become so powerful over um, not just the past year, but over the past several years. He's able to be the insurgent and the incumbent at the same time. He's able to be the hero and the victim at the same time. Both of those are very powerful. And what we've seen over the past year is any time that Donald Trump gets indicted, his opponents, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis and others, everybody except for basically Chris Christie, not only don't attack him, they use his own language to defend him and say that he's a victim, that they're a two-tiered system of justice. So if this primary season is smooth skating for Donald Trump as it's icy outside, I think he can thank Ron DeSantis's campaign and Nikki Haley's campaign for being a Zamboni to make sure that there was no, no um, cracks in that ice for him. You know, the other thing, though, was so important about that data point is that's why he keeps repeating the big lie. That's why we are going to hear it all the way to Election Day 2024, because it works, because it solidifies. And repeating it works. Right, exactly. Just like for those who follow the lost cause mythology about the Civil War, who just repeated those lies, right? It's a, it's a similar kind of mindset. And you'll be heard going into the caucus 
a lot of voters, say, of his voters specifically saying, I don't care about the general election. Maybe she can win. He was robbed. He deserves another chance. And so I think what that means, both for the other Republicans, I think it's part of why you're seeing Nikki Haley, rather than a frontal attack like Chris Christie, trying to just say, look, this is about generational change. This is about we don't want chaos. And he's focused on the path trying to create a little bit more of a bridge to people who maybe are open to not voting for Trump. So uh, earlier today, Nikki Haley uh, made a claim that the U.S. has never been a, a racist country. Take a listen. Yeah. Are you a racist party? Are you involved in a racist? We're, we're not a racist country, Brian. We've never been a racist country. Our goal is to make sure that today is better than yesterday. Are we perfect? No. I know I faced racism when I was growing up, but I can tell you today is a lot better than it was then. Uh, Haley's campaign followed this up with a statement uh, later on saying, quote, America has always had racism, racism, but America has never been a racist country. The liberal media always fails to get that distinction. Uh, what do you make of this? Uh, Racism is alive and well and thriving in the United States of America. I actually have a piece that will be going on CNN. But is, the US a, but is the U.S. a racist country is the issue? No, but I think we have. I believe that systemic racism, which is an outgrowth of white supremacy, which came out of uh, you know Reconstruction and the Civil War and became the lost cause mythology, which justified white supremacy, which created racist systems. So absolutely, just like there's still sexist systems. It does still exist. That doesn't mean that... What's in, and I know this in my own life as a person who is biracial, right? That, that does not mean that what is in people's hearts is always that they are racist or that they have hate. For some it is, but for others it means maybe they just don't have a way to see the other side or understand how we all live differently and experience this world differently. I mean, the country was founded on the premise that all men are created equal as long as they were white and men. And landowners. And landowners. And landowners. And landowners. So, oh, so, I mean, you can. And Christian. You can be yeah. honest about history and still have a positive outlook on how far the country has come, but, but you can't change history. And that's where, if Nikki Haley wants to continue to make a general election argument, the courage that she showed in taking down that's the right. biggest symbol. Um, of that when she took down the Confederate flag in South Carolina and did so by bringing Republicans and Democrats, politicians and business interests together, that's something that showed real leadership and real courage under pressure. But that was an interview with Fox. So yeah. of course she wasn't going to acknowledge it there. And look, she's giving voters a bit of an excuse to say, look, I'm a brown person from the South and I'm saying it's okay. So um, the race was called last night, uh, including on CNN. Actually, I think CNN was the first to call, then AP a minute later, for Donald Trump. The caucuses, before some caucuses even began uh, submitting ballots. Uh, it's, it's not unusual. This, this is how it's been done for a long time. And yet, uh, well, once the doors are closed, the caucusing begins. And when there's enough information, people call it. Listen to what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said about this decision by really everybody, uh, although CNN and the AP were first. We had people that decided to, to, to leave, because I, I was given a speech in Dubuque, I got off the stage, and I said, oh, they called it, AP called it. I'm like, wait a minute, these people haven't even voted yet, uh, and proportional delegate, who knows, maybe there would have been a percent or two, I don't know. Clearly, Trump would have still won, I get that, but I think it was irresponsible. I mean, what's so hard to just wait for people to actually vote? What do you think? Uh, I'd, I'd be saying that if I were him. I think this is an issue where the... Uh, uniqueness and the history and the legacy of the caucuses has not uh, changed a pace with modern technology. If this is something that has to be reconciled with, so be it. But um, 
you know, a caucus isn't a primary, a primary is not a general election, and the reality is every bit of news is instant. If you can walk into a caucus with the phone, but, you're going to know what happened. But we campaign people, people are going to dis yeah, disagree Yeah, a thousand percent, because if we're going to say we're for democracy, then we got to be for people get to vote before we call it, period, full stop. I mean, people were calling races in 2022 and 2024 when literally people were, I mean, waiting in line for hours in the heat to vote. Does that man who actually ends up getting arrested, I'm thinking this one guy in Texas, he doesn't deserve to get to have his vote and have his say before you tell him it doesn't matter? I remember being no. in a calling call-in center in uh, California in 2000 when elections were called. We're calling voters, get to the polls, and they said, it's already over. This okay. was in California. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, one thing I will say is that if there is a change made, it needs to be network-wide. Mm -hmm. It needs to be every channel, a, every news service. Um, Doug, uh, this news just in, uh, ABC News was supposed to have a debate. Mm -hmm. uh, they invited Trump, uh, Haley, and DeSantis Thursday night. They've canceled it uh, This because uh, Trump is obviously not going to be there. He's never gone to yep. a debate this season. Um, but also uh, comments from Nikki Haley and Governor uh, DeSantis both pushed to debate Donald Trump. Take a listen. That's who... I'm running against. That's who I want. That's at the end of the day. He's the front runner. He's the one that I'm seven points away from. He's the one that we're fighting for. There is nobody else I need to debate. If he's on that stage, I'm there. We're supposed to have a debate on W with WMUR on Thursday night. I committed to it. She now is saying she's not going to debate. Um, and I understand why. What's your reaction? Well, I understand they both want to take on Donald Trump and Nikki Haley certainly lost some of the Nikki momentum that we were talking about with that one-on-one -on -one debate with DeSantis. And the reality is, if you want attention at this point, it comes through Donald Trump. And the nomination has always not gone around Donald Trump. It's gone through him. So I think tactically, this is smart for Haley to do. What do you think? I think if the voters don't demand that everyone participate in a debate, then people will not participate in debates. And that's what you're seeing. And she's trying to make the best of it. And Donald Trump has done, I have to say, I mean, it is rude to the yes. voters that he refuses to take questions from, you know, non-right-wing media and that he refuses to go to debates and take questions sure. um, um, but it's worked for him they haven't voters uh -huh. haven't and voters in iowa weren't bothered i by was it. just going to say look at the results out of iowa so for from his perspective i agree with you your voters should get to hear you know you debate however for, for his team who clearly pulled it out in iowa they don't think he needs to do it and, and trump did do obviously a cnn town hall with with Caitlin Collins, also did the Univision, uh, Univision uh, Town Hall, which I think caught a lot of people, people by surprise. He's trying to communicate, his campaign at least is, in a different way than he did in 2016. Yeah, I mean, the town, Trump Town Hall, I think, was last April. Mm -hmm. It was quite some time ago. And, you know, we've been trying to get an interview with him, and he won't, he won't, he won't sit down with me. I mean, I, I, I think there are some questions about whether he's willing to take on t tough questions. Absolutely. But I think what we've seen so far in the GOP debates is the candidates use his absence to go after each other yeah. instead of to go after him. So he has even less incentive to show up. That's the only reason we know the word Vivek. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Talib, Karen Finney, and Doug High, thanks so much for being here. The conversation picks up tonight in a CNN Republican presidential town hall. Governor Ron DeSantis is going to take questions from voters in New Hampshire. My colleague Wolf Blitzer will moderate. That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern on CNN and streaming on CNN Max. The breaking news today from the Middle East, the Pentagon confirming a third U.S. strike on the Iranian-backed Houthi group and their supply of weapons. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper is here. We'll get his take on actions by the Biden administration and what's going on in the Middle East. That's next.
Back with our world lead and another U.S.-led bombing campaign in Yemen. It's at least the third round of U.S. strikes to dismantle the well-armed Iran-backed Houthi militants as they belligerently attack commercial ships in the Red Sea. This, as U.S. Central Command announced, the U.S. Navy seized Iranian-made ballistic missiles destined for Houthi militants in Yemen last week. While the Navy's complex, uh, com complex operation was successful in taking weapons that would have been used, likely to target commercial ships in the Red Sea, it ended with two Navy SEALs going overboard due to rough eight-foot swells. The Navy says those two sailors still have not been found. Joining us now, the Secretary of Defense under Donald Trump, Mark Esper. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Um, let's start with this latest U.S.-led airstrikes on Houthis in Yemen. Why space out these attacks, as the administration is doing now, and not just bombard all the Houthi strongholds at once? Is there a strategy to that? Well, I, I don't know exactly what their strategy was or is, but of course we're trying to achieve deterrence, and I assume that they, given the, the, the breadth of the strikes, they hit over 60 targets, right, in one night, uh, that they thought that would be sufficient to deter further attacks. Now, it hasn't so far. Uh, it was important to note that last week when the attacks were conducted, the DOD said it was about degrading and disrupting uh, their ability to conduct attacks, which I think has probably been achieved, but it looks like the Houthis are going to continue to go at this until we keep knocking out their radar sites, knocking out their launchers. I think we should go after their command and control. That'll send even a stronger message about our seriousness as well. And back to the U.S. seizure of these Iranian-made weapons, these ballistic missiles destined for the, destined for the Houthi minutes. It sounds like it was a, a complex mission, uh, the first of its kind since the Houthi attacks on ships started in the fall. How big a, of a dent does a seizure such as this make in the Houthis' uh, capability to target ships in the Red Sea? Yeah, well, first of all, our, our hearts, uh, thoughts yeah. and prayers go out for the Navy SEALs and their yeah. families who right now aren't. Uh, you know, we're still looking for them. Um, but look, they are complex missions. I think the importance of it is we're trying to nip at the Iranian supply chain to uh, the Houthis. Uh, they've had a few years now to build up their capacity. Uh, the, the, the nature of the operation also points to the fact that the, these weapons are coming from, the, from Iran. Iran is supplying this just like they are Hezbollah, Hamas, Shia militia groups in Iraq and Syria, you name it. So again, it goes back to Iran, and it's important that we do these things and others. We need to cut those supply lines that are going not just to the Houthis, but to Hamas as well. Let's turn to Israel, because Hamas fired 25 rockets into Israel today, the largest barrage in week, weeks. Often those uh, rockets are aimed uh, just at population centers, not at military centers at all. If Hamas is still able to conduct a, a coordinated attack at this scale, what does that say about the IDF's efforts to dismantle this terrorist group uh, months into this operation? Yeah, well, Jake, I don't think the, the attacks ever relented, frankly. They've, they've been firing rockets nearly daily, at least weekly, into Israel in the three-plus months the conflict's been sure. going yeah, on. Sure, when so, I was there, they were doing it. Sure. So, uh, look, we know that they've, they, the Israelis, have largely cleared the northern half, but it's the southern half they have to go after as well. They're doing operations. They still say they're going after pockets of resistance in northern Gaza, but they have to get to the southern part. They have to clear out these tunnels. They now think that the tunnel system was 300 miles, maybe twice as long as that. And so it's, it's quite a complex problem, that type of urban warfare. I was talking to a general, a retired general, about all the civilian deaths uh, in Gaza. And obviously the Biden administration is pushing the Israelis to launch more targeted attacks. But this general had a much more, I don't know if sanguine is the right word, but his view was just, this is war. Yeah. This is what war is. Uh, it might be worse because um, Hamas embeds within the Palestinian people and it's so compact. But this is what war is and this is why 
we should only go to war very, very reluctantly because this is what it is. It's the murder, month of murder, the death of children, the death of innocent people. Is that your attitude, kind of? Yeah, look, it's, it's tragic what's happening over there. It, it is the nature of war. You hate to say it that way because it sounds like... It sounds cold. I, it sounds cold. Yeah. Look, my war, the Gulf War, my unit, we, took, we had civilian casualties as well. It's, you try to avoid them. I think the United States does a tremendous job trying to avoid civilian casualties, limit collateral damage, but it is the nature of conflict. And unless Israel is willing to walk away from the fight right now and say to Hamas, you're, you're left intact, your leadership, whatever capability you have remaining, uh, then there, there's going to continue to be civilian losses. I think the key is, do you have processes and procedures in place to limit them as much as possible and continue to make those, uh, those assessments about the, the, the value, the proportionality, et cetera, of a strike versus not conducting a strike? Well, and, and you know, one of the things Clarissa Ward uh, said to me uh, when she visited Gaza um, with that, I think it was uh, an Emirati uh, medical group, she came back and she, she basically said, that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing so nobody should hold her responsible for what I'm saying right now, but something along the lines of, this is going to incite a whole new generation of terrorists sure. because this is, this, the death is, is, is horrific. Even Israel says they're killing more civilians than they are killing members of Hamas. Maybe right. they've killed eight or 9,000 members of Hamas, but that's still more than 20,000 people total. Um, that's got to be part of the consideration, too, beyond mm -hmm. just the idea that it's bad to kill civilians, that ultimately, as, as uh, Secretary Austin said, at some point, you're, you're actually doing more damage. Sure. You, you want to make sure you're not, for every terrorist you kill, you're not creating two or three more. And look, I don't know how you break this cycle of violence, right? Because Israel's argument is unless you go out, go in and clear out Hamas, they're no longer able to govern Gaza, uh, that, that you take other steps, such as uh, telling the Palestinians, both in the West Bank and Gaza, you can't educate your children, the next generation, that Jews are bad and Israel shouldn't exist and whatever other things they're teaching, because that cycle has to be broken. And, uh, you know, they're in a tough situation right now, disputes within the Israeli cabinet about what to do, what the next steps are, uh, not surprisingly. So on that matter, uh, there's a, you know, there are a couple of members of the Israeli cabinet that are just horrific anti-Arab racists. Uh, one of them is the National Security Minister, Ben Gavir. He says the IDF's decision to, to pull military divisions from Gaza is, quote, a grave error that will cost lives in conquering Gaza is the only way to realize Israel's goals. He wants to reoccupy and create more settlements in, in Gaza. Um, how, how does this dysfunctional Israeli cabinet continue? Yeah, I think the withdrawal of the division, the infantry division, is a, is a tactical matter. The bigger one is the one you mentioned is there is a far right in Israel that views uh, Gaza as part of the promised land. And they disagreed with the withdrawal in 2007 of Israel from Gaza. And they want to see that area, that land reoccupied and resettled. And uh, look, I, I don't see that in the cards. M most Israeli leaders across the political spectrum thought that that was the right, right move to get out of Gaza in 07 or so. So we'll see. I mean, that's a fundamental question what uh, that far-right lawmaker is poking at as well, is what does governance look like when this war is over? Is there a temporary or permanent occupation of Gaza by the Israelis? And if it's temporary, who comes in to govern? Uh, is it the United States, Europeans with, uh, with Arab militaries? Is it the Arabs? Is it uh, Fatah and, um, and uh, the Palestinian government in Ramallah? Those are the big questions right now. What happens when it's all over? Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, thanks so much for your thoughts. Appreciate it. Coming up, Israel's argument Hamas is exactly like ISIS in its tactics and strategy. CNN taking a closer look at the brutal tactics of Hamas, the similarities with ISIS and the differences. Stay with us.
Continuing with our world lead, Israel is accusing Hamas of carrying out, quote, psychological torture after the terrorist group released three videos in 24 hours featuring the th same three hostages being held in Gaza. The first two showed 53-year-old 50, <coughs> Yossi Sharabi, 38-year-old Itai Severski, and 26-year-old Noah Argamani. The last video appeared to show Yossi's body and Itai's body with Noah saying that they were killed in an Israeli airstrike. The video was highly edited and obviously Noah is speaking under duress, being held by kidnappers. The IDF denies that the two men were killed in an Israeli strike and they insist they did not strike and don't strike where they think hostages are being held. The government of Israel continues to underline that Hamas is not an Arab government with which they're at war, that Hamas is a terrorist group, not unlike ISIS. CNN's Matthew Chance takes a look now at this comparison for us, but first we must warn our viewers, the images in this report are extremely graphic. It's hard to imagine the sheer brutality of the rampage. In more than 20 Israeli communities, Hamas gunmen moving house to house, room to room, in an orgy of violence. We can barely show the horrors of October the 7th. But the torture, mutilation and killing of more than 1,200 people, as well as abductions of hostages still held in Gaza, point to a radical, gut-wrenching shift in tactics. This is one video shared with CNN by an Israeli source that we are showing you. Security cameras at the near Oz kibbutz in southern Israel show a knife-wielding gunman soaring at the necks of dead Israelis. Evidence of beheadings cementing an Israeli view that Hamas is now akin to jihadi groups like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, or ISIS. Hamas is ISIS, and just as ISIS was crushed, so too will Hamas be crushed. And Hamas should be treated exactly the way ISIS was treated. They should be spit out from the community of nations. ISIS, which controlled parts of Iraq and Syria before being dispersed in a multinational effort, also used beheadings, torture and sexual violence against their captives. While the two groups use similar brutal tactics, their goals remain different. So Hamas is an Islamist organization, but its principal enemy is Israel. And ISIS is a global transnational jihadist organization that wants to establish a global caliphate who considers every country in the world to be its enemy. Hamas doesn't attract foreign fighters. Hamas only wants Palestinians to fight for it. ISIS wants people from all over the world to come and fight for it. But is, it becoming, is Hamas becoming more? more like ISIS? So I would say that ideologically it's not becoming more like ISIS, but tactically and strategically it is. It is widening its area of operations, it's considering uh, terrorist attacks abroad, and also its tactics are becoming more like ISIS. Recently, Western security services say they've identified several Hamas threats. Police in Germany, Denmark and the Netherlands making arrests in suspected Hamas-linked plots to strike European targets. This amid growing international outrage over Israel's hardline response. 
And that response in which thousands of Palestinian civilians have been killed in Israeli strikes has further thrust Hamas into the spotlight, raising concerns, say analysts, that the October the 7th rampage and the Gaza war could inspire a whole new generation of terror attacks in the West. Attacks with groups other than Hamas exploiting the crisis. Groups like ISIS, even though they weren't responsible for October 7th, are now trying to jump on the bandwagon. They are trying to say, look, look what's happening in Israel-Palestine. Get inspired by that. Join us and commit acts of violence and terrorism abroad. Revitalizing an ISIS campaign in Western countries may not have been a driving force behind the Hamas attacks on October the 7th. But ISIS could now benefit from the atrocities Hamas carried out. Well, Jake, Israel has been arguing for years that Hamas should be treated exactly the same as ISIS, although, frankly, many Western governments have been reluctant to accept that view. But in the wake of these terrible October the 7th attacks, there is something of a shift taking place. Uh, officials in the United States, for instance, tell CNN that they are now reassessing the threat that Hamas may pose. Back to you. All right, Matthew Chance in London. Thank you so much for that report. The suspect in the Gilgo Beach killings is charged with the murder of a fourth woman. Coming up, how investigators say new DNA evidence helped make the connection to another victim. In our Law and Justice lead today, Rex Hewerman, the murder suspect in the Gilgo Beach serial killings, charged today in the death of another woman, bringing the number of women he's accused of murdering to four. You might recall the name of the fourth woman, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, referred to in the group called the Gogo Four. Her remains, along with those of Amber Costello and Megan Waterman and Melissa Bartholomew, were found near Gilgo Beach on Long Island in 2010. And now Hewerman is charged with the murder of all four after he was originally charged with only three last July. Hewerman has pleaded not guilty to all charges. CNN's Bryn Gingrass was at today's court hearing in Riverhead, New York. That's a town in Long Island. Bryn, how did investigators link Brainerd Barnes' death to Hewerman? Yeah, Jake, so when Maureen Brainerd Barnes' body was found in 2010, her legs and her ankles were bound by belts, and on the buckle of one of those belts was a hair. And authorities say in this new indictment that they were able to do an advanced DNA analysis, which showed that that hair DNA matches the DNA of Hewerman's wife, Aza Ellerup. Now, she has since filed for a divorce from him, and she, uh, investigators believe, was not in town along with her children when any of these, any of these murders actually occurred. But that was today's new information coming out in this charge, the new charge of murder against a human for the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. But we also learned that investigators have found new evidence using that new DNA analysis to connect human to the other three women as well, sort of advancing their investigation. They also said that they found evidence that includes uh, web searches of, of his computers, his burner phones to show communication between these four women. So that all came out in this new indictment. But as far as Maureen Brainerd Barnes, she was a 25-year-old woman from Connecticut, a mother, and her family did speak out today. Take a listen. Losing Maureen has become a wound that never truly heals. It remains a part of me. 
Maureen was a mother of two amazing children, and they will forever be without their mother. And Jake, that is the younger sister of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. If you remember, after her sister went missing, she received a phone call from her sister's cell phone from the killer. So you can imagine this is something she has been living with for a very long time, saying she's happy to see justice served today. Bryn, might there be additional murder charges against Huerman? Yeah, listen, the district attorney here says this concludes the investigation when it comes to those four women known as the Gilgo Four. But there were other bodies that were found on that stretch of highway. And investigators believe they can use some of this advanced DNA technology to sort of look into those cases as well. So this is still very much an ongoing investigation. So we'll have to see, Jake. All right, Bryn Gingrass in Riverhead, New York. Thanks to you. Coming up, Lieutenant Ridge Alconis, the U.S. Navy officer sent to prison for a deadly tragic car accident in Japan. He'd suffered a medical condition at the time. He's now out of prison, back with his family in the U.S. His first interview since his release, right here on The Lead, next. In our Law and Justice Lead today, some good news and a moment we at The Lead have all been waiting for. The Lead has been following the story of U.S. Navy Officer Lieutenant Ridge Alconis since he was sent to a Japanese prison for a car accident that tragically killed two people and injured another in May of 2021. Alconis was driving with his wife and three children from Mount Fuji when he lost consciousness after suffering acute mountain sickness. Though he paid the family restitution and cooperated, Lieutenant Alconis and his supporters say he was dealt with more harshly for this tragic accident than he might have been had he not been an American. His wife, Brittany Alconis, worked tirelessly to advocate to bring him home. Back in December, Ridge was released by Japan only to be sent to a federal prison in Los Angeles. Now he is finally out and back home. And Lieutenant Ridge Alconis and his wife, Brittany, join us now. It's great to see you, Lieutenant. Uh, we should note you're still in the service with all that entails. What is it like to be home, out of prison, with your wife and kids? Well, first and foremost, I, I am still active duty. And so, therefore, the, what I say today is, in our, my opinions alone, and do not represent those of the, of the Navy, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government as a whole, but... The feelings are indescribable, and honestly, I haven't found words for them all. You know, since the, from the moment the accident took place, my number one priority was to take care as best I could of those that, that were hurt as, as part of the accident. And, you know, that, that feeling has not wavered at all. And I still carry that with me today. But yeah. being home is, is incredible. Doing things like taking my kids to school, making them breakfast in the morning, Teaching my son how to surf have been true joys. And I think it's important to, to, to underline what you just said, because no one is diminishing the, the horrible tragedy that took place uh, during that accident. Um, just the question is, given the facts of the case, whether you were dealt with as a, a Japanese person would be dealt with in a similar situation, right? You know, I don't feel comfortable speculating on whether or not I was treated fairly or unfairly fairly by the Japanese judicial system. But I will say that those that supported me while I navigated that process were incredible. And without the unwavering support of my friends, families, loved ones, various government entities, that it would have been exponentially harder than it, than it was. Brittany? Here's the moment. 
I told you it was going to happen. I told you you were going to get him back. Uh, you, your, yeah. your advocacy for him is inc- has been incredible. How is it for him to be back uh, in your arms, playing with your kids? Um, it's incredible. It's incredible. Friday morning, I drove the kids to school. We pulled up. We were getting out, and I got the phone call to drive to MDC in L.A., and so I yelled at all the kids to get back in the car. Um, seeing him walk out those those doors was, it was a moment that I thought would never happen. Uh, it, it was surreal when it did, but I don't know. I Whenever they come home from deployment, you know, there's always that reintegration period, and I thought to myself what that would be like, um, and it was so much better, so much better. Somehow, a year and a half went by with him in prison, and He's back home, and it feels like nothing happened. And Ridge, uh, how are the kids, other than teaching your son to surf? What, what else have you and the family been doing? Everything that you would want to do with your own children. We walk the dog. Uh, we cook dinner together. We eat together. We, we play catch on, out in the yard. It just feels good to... To fulfill my primary responsibility as a husband and father, and again, that's what I missed the most when I was gone. I know you would never go through that ordeal again, but do you think what you went through will make you appreciate freedom more, appreciate life more? In a, I mean, obviously, I don't, I'm not happy that you went through it, but is there, is there any sort of enhanced new way of looking at the world? Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the moment I went into prison, I, I was focused on making sure that it, it wasn't all negative, that it wasn't just a traumatic experience that I had to endure, that I, was, that I, would, that I needed to find something that made, it, made me better. And some of it is what you spoke of, just a mindset and, and an appreciation of life, liberty, and, a pursuit of, and the pursuit of happiness. And other things that are more concrete. I mean, I worked in the, in the prison tailor shop, and now I can sew. And I look <laughs> forward to making clothes for myself and my family. And, and yeah, and I'm, I'm glad that I was able to do that, that I was able to find something tangible to bring home that is positive. And, and Brittany, all told, what has this ordeal been like for you and the kids? Um... It's been awful. You know, I, I'm not going to um, underplay that. It, it's been awful. But like Ridge said, we've had so many people helping us. Um, you know, my, my pace of life has changed dramatically since Friday. I have spent two and a half years, over two and a half years fighting every single day. Um, you know, speaking weekly, if not daily with members of Congress, um, with various military leadership, um, the NSC, the embassy, and now suddenly it's, it's just done. It's done. He's home, and, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful to not talk to them anymore, so grateful for everything that, that they've done. We're not done. You know, there's still a lot of advocacy that needs to take place. Uh, I believe strongly that 
The changes made with the SOFA in South Korea need to happen in Japan as well. Um, there's a lot of families not in the military, you know, a lot of wrongful detainee families that need help advocating for themselves. And we're going to take a break. You know, we're just going to enjoy our time as a family. We, we need to find our way forward. Right. Um, but once we get a little bit of that, you know, we're going to figure out how we can use what we learned to help others. Uh, Lieutenant, um, do you have any messages for the families of other U.S. citizens wrongfully detained abroad? Take it one meal at a time. That's how I did it. I focused on just making it to the next meal. And then once dinner time, just getting to where I could fall asleep. And for them to know that there are people that love and care about them. You know, I am here today, not because of myself, but because of all those that stood behind me. And it is the same for those others that are incarcerated and... I look forward to being that person for them as well. Yeah, I'm thinking of Evan Gershkovich and Paul Whelan right now who are detained unfairly and inappropriately uh, in, in Russia. Different circumstances, uh, but the same, the same pain. Lieutenant Ridge and Brittany Alconis, it's great to see you together. Go play with your kids. Good to, ha good to have you on the show. <laughs> we'll, be back. we'll be right Thanks. back. Thank you so much. In our money lead today, major turbulence for Spirit Airlines. Its shares plummeted today down 47%, down 47% after a federal judge blocked Spirit's $3.8 billion merger with JetBlue. The U.S. Justice Department sued in March to block the acquisition by JetBlue, arguing that the merger would increase airfares for travelers and reduce competition in the market. Both Spirit and JetBlue told CNN they disagree with that ruling, and JetBlue shares seem to be doing just fine, rising 4.9% this afternoon. One week before the New Hampshire primary, Governor Ron DeSantis will make his case before voters tonight in a CNN town hall. My friend and colleague Wolf Blitzer will moderate that affair. That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN and streaming on CNN Max. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer, with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.